Well, welcome to all to the School of Theology. We are on session nine tonight on the perspicuity of Scripture, and we'll run in then to the transmission of Scripture. Uh, let's open up with prayer. Oh, our Father and our God, we give you thanks uh, that your word is true and sure, and that you call us to listen to all that you say, that we should listen to your voice uh, rather than to the echo of our own. Uh, we pray, O oh, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us, and we thank you that this inspired and therefore inerrant record, uh, this uh, living and true word, uh, you use to bless us and to guide and direct your church in the paths of righteousness, even for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, welcome. We are uh, uh, studying the, the doctrine of Scripture, and we have looked at general and special revelation. Uh, we've looked at the meaning of inspiration in three major chair passages, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.19 and John 10.35. Uh, a chair passage is a fundamental passage on which a doctrine is built. Um, there are many passages in the Scripture which speak of the nature of Scripture and its inspiration, but those three in Christian thinking down through the centuries have formed... Uh, the most clear and basic passages. And so it's like three legs to a stool. Good question. We've also noted that inspiration is organic and therefore that there are both, uh, uh, because it is both of God as an author and also of man as an author, uh, because God has his Holy Spirit carry along the prophets and apostles of old, uh, that there will, it will be fully divine and fully human. It's a Christological analogy. It's parallel to the person of Christ. And so we expect to see um, evidence of uh, not only uh, uh, God uh, communicating his word to it, but using human personality and history and experience so to do. So we expect a little bit of Paul's um, culture and background and vocabulary uh, to be very evident to us, uh, and that to be a little bit dissimilar from that of Moses. They're writing in two different languages. Uh, they have uh, two different sets of favorite words. They have two different sets of expressions that they like to, to turn to, and that's reflective of the human author's involvement. And the human author is shepherded by the divine author, carried along by the divine author, and so it's not that there's tension between those two. Uh, there's coordination, cooperation. It's both fully divine and fully human. And inspiration is plenary, we've seen. That is, it's full. It's not that some words are inspired and others aren't, or some verses are and others aren't, or some books or chapters are and others aren't. Uh, the whole of the Scriptures, the whole of the Bible, is inspired of God, and uh, therefore even nuances. Um, to draw a human analogy, when your mother says, um, have you cleaned your room? Or will you clean your room? Those are two slightly different statements. And uh, so too in the scriptures, down to the level of grammar, uh, down to the level of a jot and tittle difference. Uh, the full, all of it is inspired. The grammar and, and style are not always the Queen's English because that's not a moral normative. Uh, but the original texts have been breathed out by God and uh, preserved by his singular care and providence. Uh, we also have noted that the authority of scripture is because God is a the basic primary author, is the authority of God. It's not the authority of the church or the expert only that the Bible is based on. It's the authority of God himself. Okay. Yes? Uh, 
No, the, writer, the writers themselves, not, not the, the text is inspired, but the writers themselves are not always inspired. When, uh, when John was talking to his wife in the kitchen, then he may not have been inspired. But when he was speaking with the Holy Spirit carrying, carrying him along, then indeed he was. We see evidence of this in the Bible where Peter, for example, uh, goes astray concerning a matter that the Apostle Paul has to correct him on uh, with regard to Gentiles. Good question. Uh, the attestation of Scripture, we have the testimony of the church. We have many excellencies of the Bible, but most fundamentally it's the witness of the Holy Spirit attesting to us that his word is true and sure. And so he uh, communicates that to his people. And the perfection of Scripture uh, is that the Bible is adequate as a rule. We talked about this last week. Uh, it contains everything that we can impose upon conscience. I have no right to speak beyond the Bible and to begin pressing it upon your conscience. Let me, let me emphasize how important that is. People can be very well intended when they speak beyond the Scriptures. They may, uh, uh, even not just individuals, but entire churches or, or church courts or denominations may, may think that they've got something really wise and important that they want to press upon people. But if they speak beyond the Scriptures, there will jolly well be unintended consequences like dominoes that fall out and there will be chaos in people's lives. So we stick very narrowly to what the Scriptures speak. This is especially a problem in the area of doctrine. Uh, for example, we look back at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and there have been times where people uh, extrapolated from doctrine into speculation and then pressed that on people's conscience. For example, the doctrine, uh, doctrines developed about the Virgin Mary beyond what the Scriptures teach, and they have uh, unintended consequences in the area of salvation, in the area of the sacraments, in the area of Christology, in the area of the Trinity. Um, many people in that, uh, under that darkness and confusion coming to the conclusion that uh, uh, the Virgin Mary was one of the three persons of the Trinity. There's the Father and the Mother and the Son. The Holy Spirit kind of got kicked out of the church, so it, as it were. So um, we stick strictly to what the Bible teaches, uh, solo scriptura, uh, no more, no less. And then tonight we come to uh, say more about the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity, yes. Is that something on the last slide about the doctrine of circumstances? Yes. I guess because I the, the doctrine of circumstances is found um, uh, in an or, the best organized form I know of in the Westminster Confession in chapter 1 and section 6. And it says that there are uh, details in matters of church government and worship uh, that are common to human actions and societies. For example, the Bible doesn't say that you must sit in a chair when you worship God. It doesn't say that a man must stand behind a pulpit of wood when he preaches in the worship of God. Sitting in a chair or standing, preaching from a wooden pulpit or a stone pulpit or no pulpit at all, these are common to human actions in societies. It's, uh, and the technical term is just adiaphora. It's the Lord is indifferent on these matters. And so there's no... Um, uh, there's no sin in using a pulpit, and there's no sin in not using one. Whereas if we decided that we would not read the Bible in the worship of God, then that's a big problem. Or if we would not preach, that's a big problem. Or if we wouldn't sing the Word of God, that's a problem. Or if we wouldn't pray the Word of God, that's a problem. Or if we won't observe the two sacraments, that's a problem. And so um, uh, 
the common to human actions and societies is a circumstantial kind of um, necessity when applying the word. Good question. Now, perspicuity means clarity or clearness. And the Bible is perspicuous in the sense that its basic fundamental teachings are clear in one place or another. And so um, we hold up the Bible and we say, you need to read this book. Because with the due use of ordinary means, that is, with common ways of reading a text and understanding it, looking up definitions, paying attention to grammar, uh, looking at the use of one a word in one place in light of its use in another place, by these ordinary means that you use when you read the newspaper or any book, by those means... The Bible is so clear on basic issues that it hits us in the face. Um, so this does not mean that all things in the Bible are clear. The, the Bible says a lot of things that aren't clear. Uh, for example, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible, but the word Trinity is not used. And... Uh, that doctrine teaches that there are three persons and one divine essence. And it teaches that those three persons possess that one divine essence all at once, that there's a numerical identity of essence. They're not three amigos, three guys that just happen to be infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But exactly how do they possess that one uh, essence at the same time? And it's only numerically one essence rather than three. That degree of a question is not clear in the Bible. And Christian theology, Christian creedal statements have never required an affirmation or belief in that degree of nuance. Um, three persons in one nature, numerical identity in the essence, so that you don't have three different gods, that much is required. But the Bible is not clear on other details. Now, some of us have inquiring minds, and we want to know. For example, the same thing is true in the, in the divinity of Christ. The, the two unique doctrines in the Christian faith are the Trinity on the one hand and the Incarnation on the other. But in each one of them, we reach, reach a point where we have to throw up our hands and, and we, cannot under, we do not understand at some point. We have to simply worship God. But with regard to Jesus, we know there's one person and two natures. And the one person is the divine, uh, the second person, the Son of God, and the two natures are the divine nature and the human nature. Well, can the divine nature exist by itself? Yes, with the divine person. Can the human nature exist by itself? Well, it doesn't exist by itself. But could it ever conceivably exist by itself? Could someone have the personality of Jesus in the same human body but not be the Son of God incarnate? That's a degree of speculative question that uh, uh, the Christian church refuses to get into any more detail on. Uh, another way of putting it in our modern parlance was would be if, uh, if we found a hair of Jesus and we took it to the lab and cloned it, what would we get? Or a, uh, <laughs> you get a second hair. But if you had a drop of blood on the, a piece of the cross like they long defined in the medieval ages, and you were able to do uh, uh, genetic magic on that and uh, bring back, you know, build up, grow, who would this person be? Well, the person might have a human body like Christ's, identical to it physically, genetically, 
but they wouldn't be the son of God because their person is not divine. So um, these, in every doctrine, there's a point where you reach mystery and we don't understand things. And so the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture, does not mean that the Bible is clear on everything. But what it does mean is that the Bible is clear on the basics. Uh, it also does not mean that the Bible is totally clear to all people. Uh, you have people who deny the Christian faith. You have people who misunderstand the Christian faith and who won't use the due use of ordinary means. Uh, they just look at it and hardly read it. Or they read it and they pay no attention to it. Uh, they won't look up definitions. They won't read the whole. They won't take it to heart and think about how uh, the use of um, of the word uh, light in the Old Testament might be related to the use of light in the New Testament. They won't apply their mind to it. In that sense, uh, they're not going to come to understand much of anything because of their stubborn and rebellious heart. Uh, but the Scripture can be clear if they would stop sinning and uh, would read and use ordinary means. Um, the primary doctrines are what are clear. You can, you can find a Bible in a hotel put there by the Gideons. You can read it, and you can get saved because the basic things of Scripture hit you like a, like a fish in the face. Uh, the core doctrines are clear, not in any one book or one chapter or place, but the core doctrines are clear one place or another, and you can gain a sufficient knowledge uh, to be able to be saved uh, by reading the Scriptures. Um, the priesthood of all believers is even founded on this, this same doctrine. Sometimes, or maybe as I get older, I think more often than we like to admit, it's, it's the old sweet saint who's sitting on the back pew who knows the Bible better than some of your uh, Bible college professors you studied under because they have read the scriptures with an open heart and an open mind, and its clarity on basic doctrines has uh, uh, had an impact in their own lives. So it's not that all things are equally clear. The primary things are more clear. And it's not that everything is equally clear to everyone. Some will understand things more than another because they will apply themselves to this uh, use of means that God has put at our disposal. But in one place or another... God expounds, clear, expounds clearly basic things about himself and our need of salvation and his uh, salvation offered in Christ our Lord. Uh, the nice way to put it is, is that the Bible is the people's book. That means the Bible was given for you, for you to hear, for you to sit under the preaching of, for you to sing, for you to study, for you to pray. And uh, the best of preaching doesn't leave you thinking, oh my, how smart that preacher is. The best of preaching leaves you feeling as if and able to better understand your Bible next time you read it. That's what That should be your measure of good preaching. Uh, the good preaching leaves men and women, boys and girls, feeling more able to read their Bibles, not less. And uh, all should have access or recourse to the due use of ordinary means. Any questions about that topic? I, I, think, I think when you deal, you wanna, when we think about this area of the clarity of the Bible... Uh, that these things um, are self-evident, that at the end of the day, the nature of God, the salvific work of His Son, salvation by grace through faith are things uh, that uh, grip our hearts uh, and are taught in one place or another. Any questions about perspicuity? Now we go to a um, topic with great 
controversy associated with it. I listened to a dear saint or talked and talked with a dear saint recently who um, had uh, pastored a church in another country and suffered horribly because uh, um, he had dared to, uh, in his first sermon in his new church, uh, open uh, the wrong translation. And uh, they wanted to uh, uh, throw him off the cliff. Um, uh, We'll talk first about transmission and then about translation. Uh, The two are interrelated. Uh, How is the scripture transmitted uh, down the generations in the church? God inspires in the original, and uh, then uh, with that authentic original text, preserves it in the copies. There's an authentic original text, the text that Paul wrote to the Romans, the text that Paul wrote to the Galatians, or that he had an amanuensis write, uh, and then he scribes his name at the end because of an eye condition that had developed. Uh, The original text is inspired. God breathed. Uh, The authors were carried along, and the Holy Spirit sees to it that the text that is written is the text that he intended. But then just because that letter goes to the church in Rome or to the church in Galatia, what about the Bible that we have in the the book of Romans or Galatians that we possess? Copies were made long before the Xerox or the mimeograph machine. Copies were made by scribes. And uh, there was a progressive understanding about how to do this. There's evidence that... uh, uh, that you would have someone take an original and handwrite a copy by themselves just with the text and then their writing. And then eventually, when more books were, uh, there was a need for more copies of the Bible to be produced, rather than uh, one person with the original uh, writing it down or one person with an early copy writing it down, you had a, a setup much like we have right here. The original was up front, and there would be someone who was reading that original out to the crowd. And uh, the head scribe would stand up, and he would read. And then all the uh, other scribes would be sitting there in a chair at a table with a fresh uh, piece of parchment or skin, and they would have an an inkwell, and they would have a pen, and they would write down. So um, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's so, okay. You'd say, wait, hold on one minute. In the beginning. Now, if, well, yes, in Hebrew, it's going the other way. And, and illustrating in the English, the point is, is that, uh, do you think in a crowd this large or, or that would fill up this room, would everyone spell even the word beginning properly? How many verses would we have to uh, go down before somebody missed a word? and missed, copied it as they were hearing it. Or if they're working just one-on-one with a text, have you ever copied something and skipped a line before? That's a very common thing for people to do. Or if it's being read out, um, go to Jericho. And so you write down, go, T-W-O, and somebody else writes down T-O-O, and somebody writes down T-O, and then people spell Jericho just a little bit differently. Um, there can be, it's easy for there to be um, basic confusions and misunderstandings when you're copying text, especially in mass production, 
before the printing press and before the Xerox machine and before the Internet. And uh, so the manuscripts that we have to be available today are manuscripts that contain the original. Uh, the original copy. Here is the original. And let's say you had copy one, copy two, copy three made. And then somebody got these copies, say the original was sent to Rome, and then a copy of it is sent to Jerusalem, and they sit down with a whole room full of scribes, and they make C prime one, C prime two, C prime three, etc. And somewhere in this process, say at this stage, somebody skipped a line. So all of these manuscripts are copies of the original with a line skipped rather than just of the original. And down in history, we gather up all these manuscripts, and some of these older ones are probably worn out and have been buried or thrown away or burned. And then we have to look at all these different sets of manuscripts that have been developed and try to piece back together what sorts of errors might have crept in in the copying process. This whole um, kind of study is called lower criticism. And it is a kind of study that is not unique to the Bible. Um, literary studies of any ancient texts must go through this kind of analysis if they have multiple copies of manuscripts and they try to piece together and understand what the original would have looked like. The more copies you have, the easier it is to piece together the original. Uh, do you piece it together uh, with absolute theoretical 100% uh, necessary accuracy? No. But there's nothing in our finite lives that we do to 100% absolute no way it could be any other way kind of accuracy. If we build a nuclear plant, if we build a, um, if we uh, do a gas uh, oil exploration, if we uh, drive a car down the street, we do so within the ra range of a reasonable uh, degree of accuracy and precision. And so there's a whole science of this, and there's certain patterns of mistakes that copyists made because copyists make because the one thing that's common whether you're tracing the history of the Iliad manuscripts or the history of the New Testament or the Old Testament or any other books, the one thing that, every, that all these copies have in common is the human factor. And you can uh, study the material that the copy is on. You can look at how um, the letter is shaped, the philology of the letter, um, the, the, the way that it is, uh, the, the font, as it were, the way it's drawn, the way it's written. Um, and even that can give you a clue as to the dating of when the copy was made. And if, if there was a, a word left out here and you have some copies with that word left out and you have other copies without the word left out, then you can begin to piece together the family tree and see, oh, a sleepy scribe made a mistake back here. Now, what God has promised to us in his word is this, that this text is inspired. He has given us that promise. He has never promised to us that uh, a sleepy scribe wouldn't uh, 
uh, doze off and miss a word or misspell something or make a mistake. The, the original God gives to us in absolute pure fashion. And the original is contained somewhere in the copies. But each individual copy or manuscript that we have wouldn't necessarily be an exact representation of the original. Is it possible that some of the manuscripts that is a theoretical possibility. Uh, let me give you one other complication in this whole transmission history. And that is uh, the Jewish tradition for the Old Testament was a very strict, um, uh, accurate check and counterbalance with regard to copies. They would, they would copy a book and then they would go back and they would count the individual letters. And they had um, uh, uh, an error check system built into the way that they operated. It wasn't just uh, a thousand points of light with a thousand different people doing what a thousand different people wanted to do. It kind of helped to have a theocracy. It kind of helped to have a church governmental structure with a Sanhedrin and etc., with uh, authorities who could dictate how these copies, you know, were to be transmitted and to make sure that they were done carefully. And they were, um, they were not in great abundance, and so they were, they were very carefully handled. It's not like uh, they were by candlelight in secret copying a, book of the, a go- copy of the Gospel of John, uh, fearful that the Roman emperor's authorities might catch them and uh, uh, throw them to the lions. Uh, the children of Israel had a very fine way of doing it. They had a nation state in which to do it and to promulgate these copies and to preserve and protect them. Um, uh, so the, the Lord in the Old Testament material uh, has been very gracious to give us those um, um, uh, structures and that kind of, of formal order. And the New Testament's a bit more of a freelance, and people are so excited, they'll even take a text and translate it into multiple languages. So you'll get the Greek original, then you'll have a Syriac copy made, then later you'll have somebody who uh, makes a Latin copy, and if they discover that, oh, oh, well, in that... Uh, in that Greek copy, there's a, there's a verse missing. The scribe fell asleep. I, I don't have the uh, original Greek to go to, but let me guess what it might have been. And they will translate backwards from Latin into Greek and then insert it in the text. Um, it was more of a freelance kind of thing. But with regard to the New Testament, we have thousands of copies. And so it's, uh, it's uh, much easier to reconstruct the original. And where there still is a degree of doubt as to how to spell a word or word order, or is it Lord here, or is it God here in that particular verse or passage? Um, these differences fit on a half a sheet of paper, and they do not make one whit of difference for any theological issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the little changes, slips that were made, probably were some of them were probably made with a theological agenda uh, to resolve a an apparent or more difficult uh, interpretation that was necessary of a verse, and somebody would just fix it to what it ought to have been. Um, you, see this, you see this happen sometimes in people's Bibles that uh, they have open, uh, sitting in church, and there's a man preaching, and he's gone back to the original Greek and Hebrew, and he says, you know, in some translations here, the translation is a little off, and folks will write in their margin, you know, and put a, put a better reading of the text there or translation of the text there. The same kind of thing uh, has gone on in the transmission history. But this is a a science of lower criticism, not to be confused with higher criticism where you're doubting the historicity of the Bible. 
And uh, uh, teams of scholars have worked in order to get back to the original and published volumes analyzing um, the degree of safety of a, of a particular reading. Does it have an A or a B or a C uh, kind of um, uh, grade academically to it? Is it something we're very sure of or something that we still don't know? And, and in the case where you don't know, what happens in, in English Bibles is you'll end up with a, with a footnote with a, a slightly variant reading present there. Um, in the Old Testament, you end up with another difficulty, which is that uh, the Septuagint was translated from the Old Testament Hebrew to make the Old Testament more accessible. And so there sometimes scholars reach a fork in the road when they're trying to translate the Bible and make copies of a translation. Uh, do they follow the Hebrew or do they follow the Greek? And which one should they give greater weight to? Sometimes the meaning of the words overlap. And, um, and in the overlap of words... So you have a Hebrew term and you have a Greek term. Is this what you should be using? Or is this what you should be using? Or is it possible that it's uh, something on the edge between the two languages? Um, This kind of interpretive decision, it's inescapably interpretive, is a bit more subjective. But that doesn't damage the basic underlying usefulness of the text in our lives because all of us, that are working with an English Bible, we understand that the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew, so we are operating through a translation. Think of what is the most precious verse in all the Bible to you. Somebody want to share with us what their favorite verse is? John 3.16, a wonderful verse. But, of course... God so loved the world is not the original. The original is in Greek. And we know it by a translation. And each word in Greek has a slightly different range and focus of meaning than our English words. But, praise the Lord, he has made human language, which even his incarnate son used, uh, to operate in a way where there's a kind of a cross-vector, cross-correction system. Because we actually do not We do not transmit meaning to someone just by a word. We do it also at the level of phrases and particularly at the level of sentences. And so a translation works because you've got the cross-correction of if our translation is just a little off here, then the other words pull it back into proper alignment. Um, uh, Some of us have had to go through orthodontics to get our teeth a little straighter. And uh, what they do is they put bands on each one of your teeth and then they they increasingly uh, apply pressure in various places in order to bring your teeth into alignment. And a, and a translation does that um, because God has given meaning to human language at the level of the sentence, and it refocuses and keeps us from going astray. Now, of course, someone can always uh, uh, abuse the text and run off with it in directions that are not Christian, are not intended to be seeking faithfully after uh, what the intent of the original author was. And uh, they can make uh, make a mega text say anything they want to suit their fancy. But uh, if you're looking for the meaning of the original, uh, the authenticity of the original, the transmission to the copies uh, is uh, something that God has promised and will keep you in good alignment. The copies themselves are not inspired, they're kept. And the inspired text is not necessarily preserved in a single, single manuscript, although it may be, especially in the case of a shorter book.
Uh, and just to give you, uh, to lower your blood pressure and help you see the differences, Chaucer has about 55 or 56 texts, manuscripts. Pierce Plowman has one. The Iliad and Odyssey were copied in the 10th or 11th century about events from the 8th century, and we're not really sure whether, how many intervening copies there were. And so the New Testament has 5,000 copies. We're in a completely different quadrant of the universe here. And uh, with, with especially in, in the last 100 years, with the rise of discoveries in the Middle East of uh, papyri fragment, of the Qumran materials, uh, that help with the, for us to understand the immediate background of the old of the New Testament. Uh, we are um, in the area of lower criticism, very sure of the text, uh, and that's something we don't spend our time losing. Lower criticism is not an area we lose sleep over. I'm, I'm going to be the one to show my ignorance. Everybody's got to know who's Pierce Plowman and what is that. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's it's a. Um, I've never read any of those. Well, the Iliad and Odyssey and Chaucer we know. Piers Plowman is a, is a medieval work, as I remember. Um, and uh, uh, I, think it's, I think it's normally selected uh, in the publications on this issue because it it's really just has one volume. And, we, you know, you go, you, go to, um, you go to Barnes & Noble, and there's a Penguin classic paperback, and you pull it off. And, and if you pull off one of these, it only has one manuscript behind it, and, and we really don't know about the history beyond that. And if you pull off the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's a lot of blank there because uh, the distance between 8th uh, uh, century B.C. and 11th century A.D. is a big one. And with the New Testament, you're dealing with something about which you're uh, within uh, a heartbeat uh, of originals. Uh, so it's not a... Now, that you, might, you might wonder, well, why has the Lord kept the originals from us? Well, thank God he has. What would we do if we had the originals? We would worship them. We would adore them. The Lord is keeping us from idolatry by preserving the original in the copies, in the manuscripts, rather than giving us the original. And down through history, if we had had one original of the Gospel of John... And persecution came in the place where that copy of the one original of the Gospel of John was, and there were no other copies. Tell me what would have happened. They would have grabbed the original and burned it. And we would have lost the written scripture altogether. And, and we can't say, oh, well, that could never happen. They lost the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It had to be rediscovered in the temple. Um, there can be calamity that occurs in a society and you can lose touch with the text for a period of time and access to it. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord has blessed us in this day and age. We have it. How many copies of the Bible do you have in your home? Yeah, it's, it's more than one. And then uh, how many copies can you access on the Internet, on your, on your iPhone, on your iPad, on your Kindle, on, your, you know, on all these different kinds of devices? Um, there are wonderful resources that are available. And um, uh, the Lord has blessed, in a way, for the, uh, the benefit and spiritual growth of his church. The copy and manuscript method of transmission down through the ages is something that is much more secure than keeping the original locked up in a, uh, in a vault somewhere. 
All right, we need to stop and take a break, and then we will come uh, back to this. Two weeks from now, we have one other meeting, which is uh, two weeks from now, and then we'll take a break for the summer and then come back and, um, and look again at uh, a new doctrine, the doctrine of God. Let's take a break. Well, folks, welcome back for section two tonight. It is my plan, God willing, to look at chapters 17 and 18 out of Jeffrey here. Last time we were together, we spent some time on the topic of adoption. Do you recall this? In our unregenerate state, you recall this from last time, we're not children of God, sometimes sort of running contrary to kind of, you know, sort of pop culture references. Uh, indeed, Scripture calls us children of the devil. I mean, it's really quite profound. This is not a pleasant situation. Uh, but we learned or maybe were reminded last week that through justification, we become able to be adopted into the family of God. And that adoption sort of changes our status. It makes it possible for us to be heirs, as the scriptures say, with Christ. And you think about what all Christ is heir to, to be heirs with him is a pretty big change in one's circumstances. And so that topic of adoption is critically important. And it flows naturally, I think, into what is the, the next chapter then, uh, what he calls union with Christ. I don't know if you recall this from two weeks ago, but uh, according to Jeffrey, I I didn't go back and count. I'm still just taking his word for it. He says that there are 160 uses of the phrase or some variation of in Christ or in Jesus in the New Testament. 160, a relatively small section of of, of the Bible there. So that says something about how important that notion of union with Christ, being with him and in him, what that means to us as Christians if it is so frequently uh, referenced in the Bible. And, of course, what's the, what's the alternative? Where do we sort of begin our lives? We, we really begin sort of in our, our natural father, Adam. We are, we are beleaguered by original sin. We enter this world in this fashion. And so, again, just like that notion of adoption, there are really only two possibilities. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ, with all the differences that that entails. So tonight, I want to deal with the next couple of chapters. And this next topic, I think, is also rather important for us to understand. And we're, going to take a, we're going to look at that topic of sanctification here in just a moment. We're going to pause it at that point, and I want to talk about a few related topics before moving on to chapter 18 and the relatively non-controversial topic of election. <laughs> I don't expect any of you to throw anything at me. Within these walls, exactly. We should be just fine. Plus, I know where the back door is. So let me ask you, here's a little sort of, uh, you know, a little quiz to get us started. When, I ask you, when does sanctification happen? Does it happen now in your life, or does it happen later? Who who said yes? That is, in fact, exactly the right answer. Uh, it is progressive. It is both now and later, isn't it? What, what do we mean by the, the meaning of the term sanctification? What is that in the life of a Christian? 
Yeah, you might say, there's lots of ways to put this, being made holy. I love the way that uh, actually Jeffrey puts it in the, the subtitle of this chapter 17, being made like Jesus, being conformed to his image. There's, scripture has lots of ways of, of, of sort of addressing that same topic, but isn't that exactly it? So moving further and further into that image. But it's not something that happens instantaneously. I'm sure at some point in your lives, most of you can, maybe some of you at least, can point to a time when there was a moment in your life and and a change took place, you became a child of God. I mean, some people, I understand, we can, we can point to a certain time, a moment in our lives. Other people, and I know this in Presbyterian circles, I see this all the time, there are those who are you know, raised in such a, a family and are just sort of, have always been in such a condition that they don't really remember even a moment or a time. They just know that they love Christ. And at some point in their young lives, that, that transformation, that adoption, as we said last time, took place. And there's a whole wide range of possibilities, right? You, you all understand what I'm saying. I, myself, I can't pin it down to a particular day. I can, I can get within about a week. I know there was a time frame in there in which this happened, and one Sunday to the next Sunday. But you understand what I'm saying. There was, a, there was a, 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 an immediate and, and just sort of positional change. You go from being an unbeliever to a believer. You are not justified, and now at some point you are justified. Even if you don't even know when that time is, that, sort, that conditional change happens, right? And it's, and it's, and it's, sort of, it's either or. Nobody is sort of halfway justified. Right? There's nobody who's 50% believer. You either are or you aren't. Again, there are only two possibilities there. Sanctification does not work that way, does it? Sanctification, you might say, that process begins at the moment of salvation. When does it end? Yeah, there's exactly. There comes a time for us here in this room, it's a future time, of glorification, which, as I recall, there is no chapter... Yeah, there's no chapter on glorification here. Uh, speaking, though, to a future time when we are indeed united in every sense of the word with our Creator and our Redeemer, there comes a time when, when all of that sin is pulled away and, and that condition of, of sanctification goes from being sort of a process, something happening gradually, to having been accomplished. And that's a beautiful thing, but that's a future time. And so sanctification is the word we use to describe sort of the growth or the development of of a Christian, becoming more and more like Christ. Everybody with me so far? That's, oh, we're just, that's just the definition, right? All we've done is sort of define the term at the top of the page. We haven't even started the chapter yet. I suppose that's a problem, but we'll hurry up. Here's a good question for you. Who accomplishes this sanctification? Whose job is it? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's actually, I think, a probably more complete and accurate answer would be all three persons of the Trinity, right? Yeah, you don't, don't leave yourself out of that. This is a, I understand we're talking to a Presbyterian crowd here for the most part. And there's a kind of, I'm, I am a Presbyterian, you understand. So I, I'm speaking of myself when I say this. We're almost kind of allergic to the notion of things like good works or any notion that somehow we have something that must be done. Understand though, we're not talking, oh, I'm going to stress this many times probably. We're not talking about justification. You cannot earn that. You cannot get that. You can't make that happen. But we do have a role in sanctification. We are to be laboring to become more like Christ. Now, we don't accomplish that alone, right? We can't, you could not possibly sanctify yourself. That's outrageous and a silly thing to say, in fact. You do depend upon God. In fact, all three persons of the Godhead for that. But 
but you also contribute to this. So it, it's, again, in a, in, as Presbyterians, we often sort of, uh, you know, our confrontation with the world often is that we have a, a different, sometimes a radically different view of justification. But sanctification is a different kind of, of, of property. Look with me, if you will, on page uh, 82 of the text here. Near the bottom of the page, I want you to help me tell me, just tell me what you think this means. Sometimes Jeffrey gets so confusing. Near the bottom of page 82, he says, It is as we see more and more of God that we realize our sinfulness. In his strength, we work hard at dealing with our sin because we love him. What, is, what does Jeffrey mean by that? Is, is he some kind of heretic? That's, that's very nicely put. And actually, kind of a tricky question I just posed, because there's really kind of two thoughts here sort of being woven together. So you're exactly right. And so I want you to make sure you understand this. First of all, he's suggesting to us that we don't really even understand our sin prior to justification. There is no good in us. And so because there's not, I can't, I can't look at my sin and say, you know what, that's bad, I should stop doing that. And this is good, and I'll start doing this instead. I don't have that capability prior to God's intervention in my life. And so it's only, as he says, as we see God more and more, as we begin to understand him better and better, our sin is more and more revealed to us. Does that make sense? I, I can tell you, as a young Christian, there was a lot I didn't understand about God and his law and, and his creation. And one way to explain sort of my development as a Christian is further and further understanding the depths of my depravity. I'm not trying to put a negative spin on it, but I didn't even understand sometimes the, the, the sheer wickedness of some of my sin. And I, I make it a regular part of my prayer life. God, reveal it to me. I, I, this, after all these years, all I can say with confidence is there's more down there than I know. So I ask God sometimes, show me that. Help me understand that so that in the process of sanctification, maybe I, we can begin to put some of that behind. Yeah. So the question, I think the, the question would be, Understood. No, you're right. You're right. But here's here's at least an initial reaction. I don't know if this helps or not. But how do we even know? How do we have any sense that this particular activity is a bad thing? I shouldn't do it prior to salvation. There's a couple possible answers to that, right? Yeah, you have a conscience, right? I mean, we are made in God's image, and even when that image is broken, it's not absent. Right, so on one level, right? I mean, the law is written on our hearts, so we'll we'll have a conscience. We'll we'll be pricked by it, even if we don't have a saving faith. Sometimes. Now, I think Scripture even then kind of goes on. You, you might have a, a seared conscience, and after a while, those wicked things don't bother you the way they ought to. Perhaps none of that, though. Here's the thing: none of that, though, enables us, gives us sort of the spiritual wherewithal to say, you know what? I'm going to choose this good and reject this bad. And, and here's, I think, something that has always helped me sort of understand that or think about that. Even in the past, I didn't become a Christian until I was an adult, so I can remember all sorts of 
ridiculous stuff in my life, stupid things. But every once in a while, sometimes I would do something that anybody looking on would say, oh, good for him. That was a good thing to do. I'm not bragging about this, as you'll see in just a second. Why did I do those things? I wasn't doing it out of love for Jesus Christ. And so anything I do, even something that is by every other sort of measure of evaluation somehow good, it can't really be good if I'm doing it for any other purpose but the glory of God. So, you know, give alms to the poor, great, but why am I giving alms to the poor? Exactly, what's behind that and what's pushing that? And if it's not God, if it's not his glory, then it that taints anything I do. So you're right, I mean, I could, and I did, I'm sure we all did. I could do something, I could, I could have the appearance of goodness in a sense. I could even feel bad about badness. But that's not the same as sanctification then yet. Does that make sense? Let's talk about good works, actually. Let's talk about good works after salvation. Do we have an obligation to perform good works? Yeah, that's true, that, that character James. Now, you know, there was a, I think we talked about this, there was that moment in Luther's life when he thought, that's it, I'm sick of James, this drives me crazy, I don't think I'm having a hard time understanding it, I'm just going to rip it out and throw it away. Uh, don't take that to mean that Luther was that Luther was a heretic, or that he actually wanted to dismember the Bible. I've, there are moments when I have been reading a book and thought, I'm sick of this thing, I throw it across the room, and it doesn't mean I don't go back and pick it up later and read it again. But exactly, I don't think this is actually a gray area. I think the Bible's actually, in James and elsewhere, quite clear, right? We have not just, it's not just a good idea, it's not just a recommendation, we have an obligation as believers to perform good works. Paul seems to say that these good works were set out ahead for us to do, right? I mean, this is a, this isn't just sort of a sort of a game that one plays, or it's like a menu. I'll take a good work from column A, another one from column B, make myself a little buffet. No, no, we have an obligation to do these things, and that's kind of that's kind of the sanctification issue. Can I embrace that? Can I be part of that? I no, I understand exactly, and that's uh, that that probably strikes people like you and me more than it does people from say other denominational backgrounds who are kind of okay with the working for it part anyway, right? But So you're right. But I think there was a real struggle there. You're absolutely right. I would say maybe a way to um, kind of combat the sort of community would be where often Yeah. The literal meaning of the word obliged, actually, right? Yeah, as opposed to sort of this, you know, this burden set upon me, you better do this, or or what? I mean, I want to be careful how I put this. What happens if we don't do them? It's not like you just go to hell, right? I mean, it's... I, I, right, exa- yeah, exactly. There'll be, there might be earthly consequences to you failing to kind of meet that. But it's not, still, though, it's not as though your salvation is in question, right? I mean, we all know that. Exactly, and I think this is probably a lot more complex than we kind of tend to acknowledge. Because you're right, I mean, on one level, why do I do this thing? That is a good thing to do. Am I doing it because I really want to honor and glorify my God, or is there something in it for me? I I think there's actually a very real possibility it can be some of both of those things, and various degrees of those two things. And and so, and that's just one example. I mean, this notion of sanctification, it's not sort of a, a light switch. It's, in some ways... 
harder for us, and we often as Presbyterians often don't like to even talk about it or think about it too much, because in a certain sense, justification is much easier to understand. Again, it's a light switch. It is on, it is off. It is a zero, it is a one. Whereas sanctification, I'm not even convinced, this might be, this might be heresy, please don't quote me on this. I'm not even convinced, at least in my case, I'm not even sure the line is even smooth. I'm not sure it's always progress. There are times when I feel like, this looks like 10 steps back to me. And I hope to get back to where I was before. That'd be nice. That'd be an improvement over my current state. So that's, when you start talking about a process that can go through those kinds of fits and starts, and then, but then there are other times when, boy, just this month has been tremendous, and I can't believe where God has taken me now. And boy, just these, so there can be these, these meteoric rises, and then these, uh, that's a complicated set of processes at work there. But you're right, we can fundamentally, we can rest in, in, in comfort in the knowledge that God is not leaving us to ourselves. We're not abandoned and, you know, work hard and then we'll see how it turns out for you. So there's, there's more here, but I'm going to skip it because I want to start asking about something else. Because this, I think, is kind of important. Now, I don't know if you remember, uh, but Dr. Rankin actually talked about this a while ago. It's been so long ago that I fear you, you might forget. I know that I kind of forget, too. Can anybody but Jamie... Tell me what this phrase means, ordo salutis. It's hardly fair if you have studied. The order of salvation, exactly. Again, Dr. Rankin did talk about this, but it's been like a couple of months. We were all much younger back then. Things were different. All these topics we've been talking about over the last several weeks, many weeks, couple of months, in fact, kind of help point us in the direction... It matters how the order of events goes that takes us from unbeliever to glorified saint in heaven. The order of events actually is very significant. And I will say this, from a Reformed point of view, and I'm going to actually copy this because if I miss one of these, I might then you know, be sending you to hell, and I don't want to be responsible for that. That's true, I can't, so that's a good thing. Whew. So in the order of salvation, first is election. Now, you understand what we mean by... Now, I realize I just said these, these things go in order. That's actually the next chapter, which is really not helpful. I don't know what... Uh, we'll talk about why Jeffrey does what he does and why he might be a little crazy, but... I think that actually, fundamentally, I think that is it. It's controversial, it's hard, it's going to... Put that towards the end. Literally, I think that might be it. But, but in terms of the order of salvation, it is the first thing. Why must this be the first thing? Yeah, if God didn't do this, and you're right, the Bible says before the foundations of the earth were laid, this was in his plan. If this doesn't happen, then none of the rest matters, right? But now, so that's actually probably the easiest of them all. We probably all more or less understand, yes, election, chosen. We must be first chosen. What follows next is kind of the tricky part here. So atonement is typically... Now, by the way, you will find theologians who will dispute every single thing I'm about to say, right? I'm talking sort of about a, sort of the generally, um, let's say the, the general consensus among Reformed believers goes something like this. Election, atonement. Now, we've talked about atonement before, right? What is sometimes called the gospel call or the outward call, followed by, surprisingly, the inward call, 
Everybody with me so far? Followed by regeneration. I'm running out of room, so I'm going to go on the other side. Followed by what some people call conversion, but I'm going to say something different because it actually matches up with our text. Faith and repentance. Finally, you've been waiting for it for a while, I'll bet. Justification. And then you see the dominoes fall. Sanctification. And then as we mentioned just a little bit ago, finally, glorification. If you look at, let me grab it over here so I don't lead you too far astray. If you look at just the table of contents of our book then, you'll see there's actually kind of a pattern here. All the way back to chapter 8, we talk about atonement. Uh, chapter 10, is that it? We talk about regeneration. Uh, chapter 11, we have faith and repentance. Uh, chapter uh, 14, we have justification. And then here, chapter 17, we have sanctification. Uh, finally, glorification. He sort of gets that in uh, chapters uh, 19 and 20, especially 20. I say this, first of all, just to point out, there is kind of, there is kind of a logic to how Jeffrey approaches these things. This is not just a random smattering of ideas I think are important to Christian faith or some neat doctrines you should consider. There really is a logic and a pattern. And frankly, any good systematic theology does that. It goes in a kind of order that is relevant to us. There can be different ways to approach these subjects, but given our understanding of the order of salvation, Jeffrey is not off the mark. He's not so, the, the one that kind of does sort of stand out for us is election, which, while first in order of salvation, is sort of near the end in his consideration of topics. I don't really know. Someday, if I get the chance, I'd love to ask him, why put election where you do? Uh, but it might be as simple as this is a difficult subject, probably the most controversial subject in all of the Reformed tradition. And so having sort of cemented all the rest of these, already been convincing and told you all about them, he goes to the most controversial part. Maybe I'm reading something into the text that doesn't belong there, but I want you to see sort of the big picture here. Because this order turns out to be critically important. Some of you, I know that, I can't say, I don't know that I've ever actually been an Arminian, but certainly my understanding of the Christian faith Let's say before I was a believer, when I looked around at you know Christians and churches, and my understanding of the gospel was kind of an Arminian understanding. I rejected it, mind you, but it was an Arminian understanding. The Arminian approach to the order of salvation is different, and you understand why. They start with the outward call. First, you must be called. And who's making that call? Probably a preacher somewhere, right? Some kind of evangelist, in fact. Followed by, followed then by, look, all the way, faith, and they put faith and election together. So you don't become elect until you have faith, and that call had to have come first. Understand, the vast majority of Christians in America would not hesitate a moment having heard that phrase. So, now, but I, having said that, you don't have to go back very far in the, the history of the Christian church when an understanding that, that puts it more in this order was quite common and well understood and widely accepted. It's a relatively recent development. 
in America. And it's not even true in the rest of the world necessarily, but it's certainly true here for reasons that we, we don't really have time to go into tonight. But I think there are compelling cultural reasons for why we in particular, Americans in this time, have sort of taken election, God's choice, and moved it, well, out of the equation completely and substituted it with sort of our decisions instead. I think that's kind of a, an American phenomenon, and it's not surprising given who we are, but... I don't need, we don't need to go all the way through, but the Arminians kind of take us through then. Repentance comes next. Oddly enough, regeneration follows repentance, and you see the difference, right? The Reformed believer says regeneration must come first. You must be reborn. Your heart must be transformed before you can repent. No, no, says the Arminian. First you must repent, and then your heart will be transformed. Just on the face of it, and I don't mean to be too combative, that's ridiculous. How on earth... Do you repent if you don't have a heart that's able to do so? If you can't, if you can't identify good and bad, if you can't make that distinction, I've said it before, you get tired of, I only say, I, like I said, I have like 10 anecdotes, that's it, that's the whole thing, that's, and you heard them all. It's like telling Lazarus, come on out of the cave and then I'll raise you from the dead. Speak out a word or two, ask, ask me to raise you from the dead and I will do it, says Jesus. No, that's, but it's not at all different inverting repentance and regeneration. First repent, and then you can be born again. Say that to a dead man, you're going to get the same response every single time. How are we doing so far? Any questions, comments? Yes. Well, exactly, right. And I, I, I want to be careful. I know I'm speaking to, to friends for the most part. Um, ridiculous is a strong word. You're right. To somebody who doesn't know, who doesn't understand, they just they don't understand, right? I mean, it's fundamentally... It flies in the face of sort of our own sort of desire to kind of be in charge of ourselves, right? It's, yes, it's the sin of pride, but also it is the situation in which most people find themselves. And so it's not simply ridiculous, it is, it's just impossible for them until that heart gets changed. So actually, well, you know, here, we're on the controversial subject, so let's go ahead and talk about it. Let's talk about chapter 18 for just a few minutes at least. But he could have, right. And here's the thing. This is at least this, I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm odd. If you're a believer, you do repent. Right? I mean, that's, that's, there's no, whether you're Arminian reformed or any other, if you're actually a believer, repentance happens. You, you can't get there without repentance. The, the, the question I think that some of our brethren struggle with is how did I become able to repent? So it's, you know, it's on both lists, as it were, right? Repentance is a critical step. But why can I repent today and didn't repent yesterday? I don't even necessarily know that I understood that when that happened in my life. I was an ignorant fool at the time. I'm only a partially ignorant fool now. But I have had, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, with his tutelage, I have had more exposure to the Scripture. And I think at this point I do understand better that I didn't have the ability to repent, but at the time, I was just repenting. If I did, even if I didn't understand sort of how I arrived at that spot at that moment, that doesn't mean that it wasn't real and wasn't happening. And so we kind of, we have many brethren who get stuck at that point and never do come to an understanding of how they got there. It's important, but it doesn't mean they aren't saved. It just means they are fooling themselves. I had a, I had the, I was such a, such an idiot at the time. Uh, I was not a believer, but I lived in Philadelphia for a few years, and uh, I had friends who dragged me off to this church 
10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and I sat under the teaching of James Boyce for about two years, having no idea who he was or what was going on. Actually, that whole time, we made it through, I think, about four chapters of Romans in two years. So he went slowly, painstakingly, in fact. But I don't... I, I just... So much of what he taught, and he was a brilliant man, just right over my head. Because I wasn't listening. I wasn't... The Holy Spirit was not there with me, so... But he did say something which always stuck with me. I remember him saying... If you think about it, if you deal with it long enough, everybody will eventually become reformed. That was a pretty bold statement to say. But his point was you kind of have to stop contemplating, stop dealing with the scripture, stop thinking about that to sort of, because it is not true that you simply repent. But it takes understanding. And if you sort of close that door, yeah, you might go the rest of your life not fully understanding that. Jeffrey, right in the outset, points out this is probably the single most controversial doctrine in all of the Reformed tradition. I, I don't really know of anything that, that gets up to that level. Uh, even including infant baptism, I know that's, that's maybe, that's number two, probably, uh, but even that, people will look at us and shake their heads, but they don't declare you a heretic over it usually. We have brothers and sisters out there who really do think we are not Christians, in fact because we believe in the doctrine of election. Uh, and they will even use other words to describe it, which are meant to be pejorative. Now, I don't think it works that way. They all, they, outside of Reformed circles, it's often not called election. It's called predestination, which, again, is supposed to be, ah, that's a nasty word to make you feel bad, also in Scripture, and I think with a very good and, and positive connotation as well. But, but understand, we have uh, opponents, even, especially among our brothers and sisters. That's right. So that's and that's why I use terms like brothers and sisters. They, these are our brothers and sisters. They, you you can certainly be again. It has to do sort of with a misunderstanding. How on earth did repentance happen in your life? You married a strong-willed woman. I don't know what to say. Okay, okay. I, <laughs> Look at the second paragraph on the first page, page eighty-seven, the first page of, the, of chapter eighteen. The second paragraph. I like this. It's actually a pretty nice short summation. <clears throat> He says, all men and women are sinners. All are guilty of breaking God's law. Therefore, all deserve judgment and hell. No one deserves salvation, but election is God saving by his grace some guilty sinners whom he has chosen. Again, if you understand the meaning of that word, and as we were just talking about today, not even the the Webster's Dictionary version of that word. If you understand what that means in its original context, that's God choosing. So you're stuck in a very difficult position. If you want to reject this, you really have to do some kind of damage to Scripture. You must you must interpret it in a very violent manner. You understand what I'm saying? Yet people do on a regular basis. That's just that's just that's the time we live in. That's just the way it is. Sad but true. And my next question has sort of it's already been you've already addressed it. Uh, I'll bet if you just think about your own experience in your life you have met any number of people hostile. I don't mean disagreeing. I mean hostile to the notion of God willfully choosing whom he will. I don't know what it means to be sovereign, but I think it means you have the choice. Right? So on the face of it, to say that, no, I choose, God does not, that's equivalent to saying God is not sovereign. Now, again, our brothers and sisters will not... Oh, no, he's sovereign. He's sovereign, and he'll do whatever I tell him when I make my decision. 
He's like a vending machine. I put in my celestial quarter. He, now he owes me the soda. Again, we know that's not that way, uh, but it's a very difficult thing for some people to let go of. Let me ask you something here. I, some of you probably thought about this before. Is election, is this a New Testament doctrine? Uh, we, we often point to... I think you could make that case. Typically, I just—it's my own experience, certainly true. When we start to sort of have these discussions, there are certain passages. You know, Romans comes to mind. Uh, chapter nine is a good one. Uh, some of Paul's shorter letters, Ephesians, and others definitely kind of build this argument. But is it found in the Old Testament? Who can give me an example or two from the Old Testament? Yeah, the very nation of Israel, God's chosen people. That implies. Don't get me wrong that he didn't choose the others. God chose this people, not that people. What kind of God does that? A sovereign God does that. And did he choose the Israelites because they were just the best people around? (laughs) Exactly. You could make a good, strong argument. They were the worst people. They were pretty darn bad. But God chose them for his glory. You really can't find a book of Scripture, I think, where this, this doctrine is not somehow addressed. And that's, again, it's not just the New Testament. It's not just Paul. We've been talking in the men's Bible study, <coughs> uh, the Wednesday evening Bible study, about uh, this, the new perspectives on Paul movement. And, you know, just hearing that term, new perspective, just it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. I don't know why that is. But hope and, I've heard that before, too. Yeah. <clears throat> but we've been talking about this idea. Why, where does this movement, this new perspectives movement come from? It comes from, they want to take... They want to take the notion of election, boil it down to something that Paul said, and, by the way, you all misunderstand Paul. Even if, and I'm not about to, but even if we conceded, okay, you're right, Paul meant something else. We still have the rest of Scripture. It's not just a New Testament thing. It's not just a Pauline thing. It's a biblical thing. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. Look with me. We're about out of time. We were out of time five minutes ago, but eh, I'm not ready to quit yet. Here's a, a short question for you. I have one or two questions more, but here's a short one. Did Jesus, think about, about your own experience, think about Scripture as you've understood it. Did Jesus come into the world to save, or did he come into the world to make it possible to be saved? <laughs> Are you okay? Are you choking? Do you need anything, a drink of water? Okay. No, no, because it's belted out, whatever it takes. Now, what is the, obviously, I think that's the right answer, right? What's the difference between those two statements? Is it important? Could it be both? No. It really can't be both. Actually, I finally got to reading A Faith to Live By, and there's an interesting bit in there where he quotes somebody who said, you don't have the option not to be saved. It's wrong to refuse that. Even if you'd rather go to hell, God wants you in heaven. Yeah, it's... Frankly, it's undeniable, right? It's not even conceivable. It's not possible that God could change your heart, regenerate you, and then you say, no, thanks. That's the part that I don't well, it is. But think about this, that idea that Christ's sacrifice makes it possible for us to be saved, not certain that some will be saved, but possible. You understand that? Think of all the different kinds of Christians who fit in that category. That is the entire Catholic Church. 
a very large section of at least modern evangelicalism. That's what, what we just describe as kind of a simple and easy juxtaposition. No, God didn't come to make it possible. Understand, the vast majority, at least alive in this world today, the vast majority of Christians would say exactly that. And then something else must happen, whether it's me, you know, doing some works and, and keeping a level of grace up and doing penance if I have to, or or cooperating with him on salvation, repenting and coming halfway out of my tomb so that then he can meet. I got to add something to it. It's only a possibility. It's not a certainty. Somebody, go ahead. Absolutely. Like I said, you have to do damage to scripture in order to, but people are willing to do that, I think. Because, you know, we're sinners. And all of us, you know, I, I'm, I'm being probably harsher than I need to be. That could easily be me. I mean, I could certainly see myself in that. You know, God has been gracious and has, has opened my eyes, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but I have plenty of pride. That's right. How could that be true? And that's not just, you didn't make that up. That's out of the Bible itself, right? How could that be true if every decision in that sense then were up to each of us, like Celeste, like you said, that would mean it would be possible we could all reject it. If it's, if it's an open question, one possible outcome is that everybody says, no, thank you, ignores that possibility. Then his word does return void, apparently. And that, again. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, how could that, that's a great, I think it's a perfect allegory for us. You could, at a young age, you could accept Jesus Christ, right? You could be, you could be transformed. You could be born again, all of those things at age five, right, and you lived in 95, and you put in 90 good years of service, sort of going to church, trying to keep the commandments, failing sometimes, seeking forgiveness and carrying on, that 90 years of good faithful service is in the end not worth any more towards your salvation than the guy down the block who at 95 years old, moments before his death, concedes, yes, Jesus Christ is the way. God changes his heart at the last hour and gives him, as a, in a sense, the same denarius, the same reward that you got after, you know, 90 years of versus his 90 seconds. That's, that is sovereign, right? And it's, but it's, is anybody getting anything they don't deserve? Well, in a sense, yes, nobody deserved even the first denarius, right? So in that sense, yeah, okay, is it unfair? Yeah, but in a good way. <laughs> Right. It's nonsensical if you think about it. And the great, of course, the great analogy in scripture is that of the potter, right? I have a lump of clay. I can make whatever I want out of it. And I don't care if it complains to me about what I made it into. I'm the creator, right? God, far more so if he's God, right? Look, I made this thing. I made some for this use. I made some for that use. Who are we to quibble over that? If we could, he wouldn't really be sovereign. And this is the last question I have. It happens to be the last question on page, or the first question on page 90. You know, he always puts these little questions. This one I found intriguing. He says, what do you think of the following statement? Election is the strongest possible encouragement to evangelism. Because really, you could, you could think of this kind of related to evangelism, right? So one is elect, and that's what scripture says, right? Before, before God made the earth, you were elect, right? And so then there's atonement. There is, there has to be a call. What does the Bible tell us to do? We're to go out and spread that gospel message, right? Now, it's, I don't know how any of you all feel. For me, I don't know if it's, maybe it's different for you. The biggest obstacle I have in my life for the past 20-some years to actually sharing the gospel with other people has always been that kind of sort of fear of rejection, 
right? I'll say this, I'm like, get out of here. Well, okay, first of all, it does me no harm, right? I, I mean, intellectually I understand this, but, but emotionally I still sometimes have a hard time kind of pulling that trigger. That's maybe a bad analogy, but you know what I mean. So, but, but I know, I know it does me no harm for somebody to say, no, get away from me, you idiot. I don't want to talk about this. Okay, well, you know, so be it. But the Bible makes it very clear. Some, in fact, are called. They need to hear the gospel, and God's going to make sure they hear the gospel, but he's tapped me and you and all of you to be that messenger. We are to share the gospel. Some do it more than others, maybe. Some will have other opportunities. But the bottom line is they're out there, and we don't know the difference. I can't tell by looking. It, wouldn't that be much more efficient if they everybody had like, just like, a little, like, a, you know, like a red sweater? Ah, go get those people, right? But no, so we have, an, in a sense, Celeste, right, kind of an obligation, right? This is one of the ways we show our love for God is to tell people about him, knowing that somewhere out in that crowd, many people, hopefully, I talk to, some respond. In this, this I hate to say this, it sounds like, like boasting. It's not boasting. This is actually the opposite of boasting. My, my own salvation kind of falls in that category. No person ever came to me and shared the gospel with me. All I did was read the Bible. So in that sense, there was a, gosh, how did that thing get there? I couldn't even tell you, but it was there, right? So you're right. But so there is a, that gospel call generally comes from people. But even that, what do people share? It's they're sharing the word of God. So you're right. It'll happen. If you are elect, you are going to get that gospel call. That's, that's not kind of an open question. You know, there are 10 elect people who didn't get the call. Darn, they're lost. <laughs> For safety's sake, I'm going to call on Jessica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that sense, it's not up to you. This is a problem I think that some of our, our I, I pray for them, our Armenian friends feel as though if I do it well enough, if I get really good at sharing the gospel, they'll be saved. Like it's on my shoulders. I, I've heard interviews with Billy Graham where he says exactly that. Gosh, I, just, I didn't do a good job that night and all those people were lost. Now, Billy, it's not up to you. You don't, you're not personally responsible for saving them. You might be responsible for sharing the gospel because you just love God and you do that. But you don't save, none of us do. So is it a matter of, do I preach it well enough? Do I get really good at sharing the gospel? And that, no, it's a matter of, did God call them or did he not? Did he choose them or did he not? That's exactly right. And, and you know, even those tough cases, you know, what, what about the tribesmen in Africa who would, well, if God wants that person saved, they're going to hear it. I, I, I can't explain to you how that's going to happen. But... But there's no, there's no sort of, if you think of the, the circle that encompasses God's elect, there's nobody in that circle that doesn't get that call on some level or other. Jamie, we have, um, we're like 22 minutes past the time we're supposed to stop. So I'm going to, pardon me? No, we, we have one more, believe it or not. So I'm going to give you the last word. I, there's no pressure, but after this, we are done. There's a, a historian a secular, non-believing historian named Perry Miller, who became famous by writing a series of, of, of history books about the Puritans. And in one of those books, a little um, introduction to a piece he was writing, he made this observation. Many people believe that because the Puritans, who were Reformed, believed in what he called predestination, that that meant that sort of everything's up to God, and so they could just sit back and let God do his thing. He said they understood it almost exactly the opposite. He said the Puritans under, this is, a, this is an, an, unbe, an unbeliever. He said what the Puritans took from that, 
that, yes, God is sovereign and he is in control, meant that they could do the most bold, wild thing you could imagine with all the gusto that you could possibly muster up because ultimately it is in God's control. What does it take to get you to sail across the Atlantic and build a new home in the middle of a wilderness? I don't know what that takes exactly, but they did it because because they knew God was sovereign. They weren't earning any salvation. They weren't doing some good works in the hope of getting God's favor. They knew that God was in control of these events and they could be as bold as they could possibly imagine. That's, a, that's why we can. I mean, what a ridiculous notion to walk up to a stranger, tell them about the gospel and have some expectation that maybe they'll say, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Yes, yes, I, I believe. That's crazy talk in a certain sense unless there is a sovereign God who changes hearts and opens ears and they hear that and they do, in fact, repent. But that's, that's the God we serve. And that's, to me, that's a beautiful thing. So um, if anybody asks, we actually finished 25 minutes ago, all right? And that'll be that. Let's, let's pray together before we leave. Heavenly Father, we are, we are so grateful that we serve such an awesome God and such a God who has the sovereignty to, to change hearts, has the ability and the will to call those, to elect those into his kingdom. Father, we pray that, as we were just discussing, we ask that you would use us as your tools. Help us to be uh, faithful in all the things that you give us, but especially, Lord, faithful in the presentation of your word to others and to be those eager, bold servants who will go out and do wild things on your behalf, knowing that as a sovereign God that we can expect the outcome that you have ordained. Father, we pray that you would, as we depart here tonight, uh, send us out with your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.